Thursday Arts Preview receives support from Spokane Media Federal Credit Union, a member-owned financial cooperative offering lending and banking services to professionals in film, marketing, performing arts, and more. Information online at smfcu.org. Welcome to a special episode of the Thursday Arts Preview, where the P is parenthetical. I'm your host, E.J. Ionelli. This weekend, the Northwest Museum of Arts and Culture will open an exhibition titled Harold Belay's Leaving Marks. It features 30 of the artist's mixed media works that the museum recently acquired from a private collector. And while the exhibition at the MAC will continue until June, throughout this month of February, it'll run in conjunction with Big and Bold Belays, a separate exhibition curated by the Art Spirit Gallery in Coeur d'Alene. So on account of this Harold Belays double feature, this week's episode will look at some of his work, his regional influence, and the significance of the MAC's exhibition. We'll be hearing from three different people, each of whom is able to speak to a different facet of Harold Belays as a person and as an artist which, in Harold's case, were often one and the same. If you're unfamiliar with Harold Belays and his artistic legacy, don't worry. In each of these conversations, we'll talk about some of his biography and his background. But maybe one of the best ways to introduce him is through what you're hearing right now. This is his sculpture, titled Listen being played by three Spokane Symphony percussionists back in 2016. The steel sculpture sits right here in front of the Spokane Public Radio building, and it visually resembles an ear, but it also has this secret interactive element that caters to that very organ. To begin this special Belays-themed episode, we'll first hear from Anne Claire Mitchell, who curated this new exhibition at the MAC, and as she explains, she took inspiration for the theme of the exhibition from Harold Belays himself. I think the premise for this exhibition really came as I was researching Harold's life and work and trying to put myself in his shoes. Um, I came across an article from 1998, um, an opinion article that he wrote, and this was uh, ahead of his exhibition at the Junt Art Museum. Um, over at Gonzaga in celebration of his 70 years. Um, so this was a retrospective, a beautiful show that they put together. And uh, I'll read you an excerpt from this article because I think it can offer a little bit of a foundation for the exhibition. So he writes, The great flood of ephemera that has poured through every age, every race, every culture, serves to remind us that not a single people have escaped the sacred need to leave their marks. Even when all have disappeared, we know of their passing and are better for it. I find it blasphemous that there have been those who compare the differences of the marks and try to demonstrate that one is superior to the other. All of those marks had many reasons for being that we may never understand. Often something as simple as, I am, or I did this. Each age made its marks with existing technology and available materials. Observing this, I fail to understand how, in our age of ideas, our marks are expected to represent some aspect of the known visual world, 
especially when many disciplines are speculating on the nature of reality. So from that excerpt, not just a skilled sculptor and a skilled mixed media artist, but also a skilled writer as well. Yes, and although I think the community knows Harold very well for his sort of sly sense of humor, as a prankster, as someone who didn't take anything too seriously and kind of reveled in the absurd, beneath all of that, he was also a deep humanist and a bit of a philosopher. And he really saw the world through this sort of egalitarian lens. And I think that informed a lot of how and what he made. Um, and that's really, I think, what we're trying to explore a bit more in this exhibition. And you had made mention of the commonalities between the works in this exhibition. Uh, but what caught me was the variety. Well, these are all more mature works um, that Harold made in pretty much the last 20 years of his life. And I think as a collection, they come together in a little bit of a, a quieter presentation um, than maybe some of the other large exhibitions that we've seen of Harold's work, which have been understandably just sort of a cacophony of things. His practice was so vast. He worked in sort of a craft discipline, making functional objects to uh, 2D works, large abstract paintings, drawings, prints. Um, he did an incredible amount of metal work from uh, sheet metal-based sculpture, copper sculpture, uh, wood sculpture. He made furniture. I mean, it, it goes on and on. And, you know, I think a lot of this relates to his upbringing uh, near Cleveland, Ohio, during the Great Depression. So he was introduced to fabrication by his father, who owned an HVAC repair business and was a, an industrial sheet metal worker and sort of machinist. And so I think living near this metropolis and this manufacturing hub that was Cleveland, which simultaneously had the Cleveland Art Museum that Harold was exposed to by his mother very early on, um, and also a major manufacturing culture, especially in enamel work, industrial enamel work. Um, so that, I think, exposed Harold pretty early to the, um, the creative potential of some of these industrial materials without sacrificing the, the craftsmanship. And so he was a tinkerer, and he was very interested in experimenting with process and how things were going to be put together, how things could be fabricated you know, affordably and accessibly. And during his life in Spokane, I think he really retained some of these principles of self-sufficiency. And a lot of the work that you'll see in this exhibition he was using similar consumer and industrial materials, but he was making these almost, you know, fine art objects out of them. So he was making his drawings using cup stock paper, for example, which is the the material that you're that you drink your soda <laughs> out of at the at the movie theater. He was working with in sheet metal and, you know, actually using things like craft glue and tar and household appliance parts as his art materials and, and was kind of eschewing some of the more conventional stuff that the capital A art world might, you know, insist is proper. Um, and this show is actually divided into multiple sections. So what are the titles of those sections and what exactly are they aiming to capture? Yeah, the sections are titled Constructed Realities, 
making life and transcend the ellipsis. <laughs> um, and constructed realities, I think, is really talking about some of those materials and the processes that we were just mentioning where you know economic constraints were pushing Harold to adapt to these new methods of production, um, which then went on to kind of inspire more of his visual content. And then uh, Making Life um, highlights everyday encounters and Harold's reality interacting with his family members and his friends, outdoor adventures, um, as a source for a lot of his creative output. Transcend the refers to a phrase originally coined by Ken Kesey of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest fame during the acid revolution of the 60s. And the phrase that Kesey coined was transcend the bullshit, which I think a lot of Spokenites might recognize as a, a motto that Harold later adopted and featured in a number of his design elements. And I think in a lot of ways, Harold's satirical approaches to art making kind of aligned with Kesey's belief that experimental art was uh, a vehicle for kind of expanding public consciousness and making for a more connected world. And if this exhibition could be said to have maybe a centerpiece, there is this piece called Trying to Understand, and it's described as, as groundbreaking in the press release. Uh, what exactly is this? Well, it's certainly my favorite piece of the exhibition. It is, I think, what I can only describe as a slab <laughs> of carved styrofoam. Harold was always trying to innovate, and he was always trying to find ways to make, um, in particular, some of his larger, more monumental artworks as affordably as possible, as efficiently as possible, and as accessibly as possible. And he was really known for being able to make a public artwork on time, under budget, and transporting the material, installing it. He, he did it all and was so skilled in all of those different steps. Yeah, all important qualities for a public artist, right? Yeah, absolutely. But uh, as part of that innovative drive, he developed a concrete forming technique that he called styrocasting. And he found that he could use styrofoam actually as a, as a mold for some of his um, concrete relief work. It was extremely efficient. It was lightweight. It was affordable. Um, so he kind of pioneered this styrocasting process. And then as time went on, I, I think that he realized that he could use styrofoam itself as a sculptural material. And that's what we're going to see in the, the work that you're talking about. And the Mac did acquire this collection in its entirety. Why was it so important for the Mac to acquire this particular mm -hmm. collection? You know, the, the Mac was made aware of this collection's availability, and we felt it was really important to keep the collection in Spokane. Um, Harold called Spokane his home for the majority of his life. He lived with his family in a home that he built largely himself by hand in Mead, Washington. And he was so dedicated not only to the, the Spokane community, but specifically to the Inland Northwest as a region and gave this community so much of his energy. Um, and I think it was really important to the MAC to um, reciprocate that. Cool. Well, Anne-Claire, I want to thank you so much for coming in today and running us through the, the broad parameters of this exhibition. Um, yeah, it's much appreciated. Thank you, EJ, for having me.
That was Anne-Claire Mitchell, an art consultant and the curator of the Mac's new exhibition, Harold Belay's Leaving Marks. If we follow Harold's own advice and think of leaving marks as more than just creating representations of the known visual world, then we might consider his legacy in terms of the personal interactions that profoundly affected those around him in some lasting but intangible way. The internationally renowned Seattle-based architect Tom Kundig has proudly stated that he was influenced by and drew inspiration from Harold Belay's in various ways. When Tom and I spoke by phone, I asked him what form that inspiration ended up taking. You know, in many ways, I grew up with the family as a kid. My parents knew uh, the Blazes. My dad was an architect, and of course, the relationship between architecture and artists is, is significant, and it certainly was in the late 50s, 60s, and the 70s. So they worked together a lot, but our families also spent a lot of time together. So the inspiration is a long inspiration, and I actually was occasionally working with him and the family on uh, some of his installations and some of the fabrication of the work. So it's like a lifelong impact on my career and, and just my life, frankly. And of course, there are any number of reasons as an artist or an architect or a musician or a poet to sort of be frustrated with all the converging challenges that happen in creative fields. But Harold had an optimism and uh, in a, a sort of a sense of being able to overcome at all costs, because ultimately the creative uh, work was more important than the challenges. And I still find inspiration in, in that strength, even uh, during my career as an architect. Yeah, even though he was very serious about art, there was a playfulness to the man and a playfulness in his work as well that I think um, is very, very visible in a lot of pieces. Absolutely right. I mean, it was hilarious to work with him. I mean, I have so <laughs> many um, anecdotes and quotes. And if you were going to spend some time with Harold, you were guaranteed an adventure of some kind. And he um, was well-read, super uh, well-spoken, and was able to articulate ideas about what he was thinking about as an artist and what he was thinking about as somebody intellectually uh, engaged in what was happening uh, culturally in the world. And so that leads me to ask, is there one particular anecdote that you often find yourself sharing or reflecting on that is indicative of Harold? I would say maybe the best answer, rather than focusing on one, is that the collection of all of those moments and those experiences lead to, in retrospect, a thought that we're so lucky to have Harold in our lives. And it's not just a single moment. It's the long moment uh, for all of us, for us as individuals, but also Spokane's fortune to have him as a, as a community leader. And you talk about these cumulative moments that become one big moment. And that, I think, could also apply to his works because when you take his works in aggregate across the region, he is ubiquitous. I mean, right in front of our building at Spokane Public Radio, we have a sculpture of his. Um, are you aware of another, another artist or another creator who has had such a widespread influence throughout the region as Harold Belay's? Well, Harold is, um, I think, one of those rare individuals that impacted not only my life, 
but uh, an entire community's life. And in fact, I would argue an entire area. He was always working. I'm going to just guess seven days a week, like 18 hours a day. And he was always uh, generating art because, you know, in, in maybe quieter moments, he would say to me that art should not be uh, just relegated to sort of very precious spots or very precious moments. But it's more important that the art gets out as far and as widespread as possible. So for him, art was at all scales. It was at small scales. It was at large scales. It was at private scales. It was at public scales. And Harold, when he could have gone to Los Angeles or New York or a, a bigger market and maybe seen some more success in those areas, in fact, I would say he would have, but he was interested in the influence of his home and that was Spokane, Northern Idaho, uh, Western Montana, and, and a little further. I mean, it goes up into Canada and Alaska also. But, you know, we were so lucky to have an individual of that talent and that force to basically take root in Spokane and stay in Spokane. And maybe because you knew Harold personally, and so you had a closer connection with him in that regard, that you didn't necessarily observe him at one remove as maybe an art critic might. But in terms of his overall career development as an artist, are you aware if he had major phases like, you know, his blue period, for example? Yeah, it's actually a really interesting question. And um, I think there are moments or certain phases, but maybe not as distinct line in the sand kind of phases that you might uh, associate with certain artists. You know, I can recall um, he did some beautiful watercolors. Everybody remembers the Cabbage series, uh, which ultimately led to uh, metalwork and other forms of, you know, expressing what a cabbage was and is and could be. So I would say it was more, it was less packaged and definitive and more it would move fluidly from place to place. And to your point, it was all medias. And maybe sometimes he's sort of focused on metal or he might have focused on enamels or watercolors. But it just feels like it was more of a, a river of art. And it just modified with time and culture and uh, moments in his life. Well, Tom, I really want to thank you for taking the time out to chat because what I have found, especially in this conversation, what it's brought to light is that it was more than the art. I mean, if Harold just had his artwork to show, it would be a strong showing indeed. But it was also about the man and, um, yeah, how he energized a community and those around him. hundred percent. You know, um, he was he was a person just curious about life and people and making as much as he could out of the, the brief moment we all are here on, on earth and extraordinary uh, delivery of all sorts of writings, poetry, artifacts, whether they were boats or tables, furniture or art in different media, just a force of nature. The architect Tom Kundig there, talking about his relationship with Harold Belays and how the influence that Harold had on him personally scales up to a community and even a regional level. 
But now, instead of pulling back to look at Harold and his art from that very wide angle, we're going to shrink our focus right down to those who knew him as a husband and a father. His wife Rosemary, his son Kurt, and his daughters Andrea and Erica. As the final pieces of the exhibition were being put into place, Erica came in to talk about the artist who she knew as dad and what life was like in the Belay's household. My sister and I have talked about this some because... Yeah, we'd watch on TV these fathers who, like, leave it to Beaver's dad and everybody who would come home from work. And it was, you know, dad was always home. Dad, um, in about 61, moved out to Mead where he found a place that had a shop. Up before that, he was on 20th, and his shop was the size of a two-car garage, and he was getting more commissions and needed more space. So moved out there, and so his shop was always 100 yards from the house. So he was always there and always very involved in a lot of the day-to-day stuff. And we did a lot of things together that way. So sometimes we'd come home from school, and if it was morel season, we'd go trotting out to get morels. Or if the sledding hill was good, we might go do a sled or a toboggan run. We always planted the garden together. He blared opera out the windows, and we'd listen to opera, Texaco Opera on public radio, every Saturday morning <laughs> for years. But So very hands-on, very involved. Um, but also, he also let us do stuff. So we were in the shop a lot, and we got to play with tools and got to touch toys that probably most kids wouldn't get to touch anymore. So did he encourage then a certain amount of curiosity and a certain amount of experimentation in just your general childhood? I suppose so. It's sort of funny because we just did. And maybe that's because he was encouraging us and maybe it's because of where we lived because we're just, it was on 10 acres. We were, whether we were outside making mud pies or planting the garden or building forts, we love to build forts, or whether we were in the shop, you know, he was always involved, involved in the shop. The forts we did on our own, but Part of that's because we saw him build stuff. And one of the common themes that has come up in my conversation with Tom, for example, is that the art is really an extension of the man, and his personality is very evident in the art. So I'll refrain from talking capital A art. Um, I, <laughs> I, I guess so. You know, it's, sort of, it's, it's hard to think that way because, you know, he was dad separate and apart from his art, and he made neat stuff. And he always made stuff, and he was about making stuff. So I guess by default his personality would be reflected in it, but I never thought of it that way. Yeah, and how was the art regarded in the household? You know, you've talked about this capital A art and, you know, lowercase a art. You know, is one is uh, something that you philosophize about, and the other thing is just something that is, I suppose. But was there this sense of... I, I don't want to use the wrong word. Was there this sense of greatness or something special about his work? Or was it just, again, something that he just did? I don't think we realized how special it was. I, I, I do remember when he won the, uh, I think it was 66, gold medal from the AIA in craftsmanship. And at that point, you realize this is a national medal and he's won it. But it wasn't until I was going through things trying to figure out how how much that was worth as the personal representative <laughs> of the estate, that I saw who else had won that thing. And I had no idea. And part of it is the art would come and go. So if, you know, he'd do a whole bunch of stuff and it went off to a show. And if we were lucky, there were lots of red dots and things were sold and nothing showed up again. Or a big piece was being made and would be installed somewhere and it was gone again. But there, there were some pieces around the house that all three kids coveted. Can you give me a for instance? There was a, a mirror he'd made for my mom that had gold leaf 
on it. It was just gorgeous. She gave it to my daughter for her wedding. Um, he did several three-dimensional cabbages, some stainless steel, but some were enameled. And there's still one of those enameled cabbages. It's a purple cabbage, so it's you know it looks very lifelike, but it's a enameled steel. And then the liquor cabinet was a favorite. A um, long time ago, there was a foundry that went out of business, and he got all these foundry patterns. And so it was a sort of half a boiler pattern, and he made that into a liquor cabinet that was just painted in oranges and and reds and just glorious, too. Then there were a couple of things. There was a, a piece called Brave Hans Schnockelock, which was based on a French album of kids' songs. Um, it was the sample piece for the St. Charles Doors, and none of us know where it went. One of the heartbreaking things of the family, we don't know where Brave Hansa Schnackalock went, and we don't know where Patty went, which was a little stainless steel sculpture that was sort of a happy face before there was really a happy face. And Harold left an indelible mark on this region, and it's kind of remarkable how closely associated he was with the Inland Northwest in particular. Now, do you, as his daughter, drive around and see his presence everywhere or does it just become part of the landscape after a while oh no we see it and we know where it is and when friend we had some friends from out of town and i drove them around town showing them my dad did that my dad did that but and so yes you do notice it and some of it like the i think it's the hennessy funeral home on division is just one that we dearly love and after he passed away um, every time i went to the dentist which was two doors down from saint charles i would go and stand in front of those doors just to stand in front of those doors. And are there any of those pieces that maybe after his passing helped you feel a connection with him? Well, actually not his work. So Ken Spearing did the piece of the uh, Sacred Heart Nun and the workman that's down by the opera house. And my dad's the model for the workman. And so every Memorial Day, while my mom was still alive, my sister and I, the three of us, would go down there and lay a rose on that sculpture before we went up to the graveyard to visit her family, too. So thank you, Ken. <laughs> <laughs> and I think, you know, it's going to be difficult for any exhibition to really encapsulate an entire artist's career, especially someone of Harold's caliber. But this does serve as a decent entry point, at the very least, for someone to explore Harold's work more. Yes, there are a lot of the drawings on the um, waxy paper, but there's a lot of sculptural pieces. There's a couple of, you know, some of them are wood. I think there's a couple copper pieces. The copper pieces are really representative of his work, especially if you go downtown, there's some larger ones to see. So yeah, it, it covers a pretty good range of media, certainly. It's just not 100% representative of his work, his full spectrum of his colors. If this only offers a, a certain window onto Harold's work, why is it so important for the Mac to have this particular collection? So Dad made this uh, city his home, and it's nice that this amount of work will be accessible, but it's my hope that other people will see this collection, see it as part of Spokane's heritage, and say, when I need to get rid of my collection of art, and in particular my collection of Harold Belays and my kids don't want it, I really hope people think about donating it to this collection to make it a complete and representative collection of Harold's work. Well, Erica, I want to thank you so much for coming in today and talking about this. It's, uh, it's been very enlightening, and your unique perspective on this has been particularly enlightening. Thank you. Oh
That was Erica Belace, daughter of Harold Belace, talking about her late father, his work, and the new exhibition at the Northwest Museum of Arts and Culture titled Harold Belace Leaving Marks. The MAC recently acquired the 30 works in this exhibition from a private collector, which makes this the first time that these works have ever been available to the public in this combined form. Harold Belay's Leaving Marks opens on Saturday, February 3rd, and runs at the MAC until June 3rd. More information about the exhibition is available at northwestmuseum.org. And Leaving Marks isn't the only Harold Belay's exhibition currently in the area. On Friday, February 9th, the alliterative Big and Bold Belay's exhibition opens at the Chalice Brewery in downtown Coeur d'Alene. This exhibition is coordinated by Coeur d'Alene's Art Spirit Gallery, which has shown Harold's work frequently over the decades. And you can view works from this exhibition at theartspiritgallery.com. The Chalice Brewery website is at chalicebrewing.com, and Big and Bold Belay's will run there until February 26th. Additionally, if you visit the Spokane Public Radio website and look for this episode of Thursday Arts Preview, we'll have a video clip of his sculpture Listen being played, as well as a gallery of some of the works in the Harold Belay's Leaving Marks exhibition. You can find that at spokanepublicradio.org. This has been a special episode of the Thursday Arts Preview, a show that keeps an eye on the past, present, and future of the art scene throughout the Inland Northwest. If you'd like to listen again or catch future episodes as soon as they air, Subscribe to the Thursday Arts Preview podcast on major platforms like Spotify, TuneIn, and Apple Podcasts. For Spokane Public Radio, I'm E.J. Ionelli. Thursday Arts Preview receives support from Spokane Media Federal Credit Union, a member-owned financial cooperative offering lending and banking services to professionals in film, marketing, performing arts, and more. Information online at smfcu.org.